Let's open our Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 32. Deuteronomy chapter 32. For those of you that love glorious statements about our great God, like we sang in that last song and in both songs, Deuteronomy 32 is one of them because it is a song. It's the song of Moses. And it is glorious about God. Deuteronomy 32. I don't need to make any introduction about what we're doing today. We are studying, except for this, we are studying God as our Father. And the first service this morning, we looked at God toward us. What character traits does the Bible tell us about Him? What did Jesus reveal to us about Him that would comfort us at such a great God and Father that we have? Now, this second service is the opposite side of the relationship. What should we do for Him? What do we owe Him as His children to delight this God that is our Father? So it's us toward God. And so that's what we're going to look at. Again, I limited myself to 20 points. Oh, yes. The Bible is full of both. And yet I limited myself, and so I hope that it can be simple for even our children to understand and appreciate and that we can bask in ourselves, that we have one great Heavenly Father. We can rely on Him no matter what our circumstances of life may be or wherever we are in our time on earth. And we can also be motivated, convicted, to think of what we can do better to please Him because He's told us those things as well. And so you have a piece of paper in front of you with 20 rows, with two blanks, for us toward God in our consideration of Him as our Father. In Deuteronomy 32, I read verses 5 and 6. Let's get verse 4, because verse 4 is just one of those special descriptions of God. He is the rock. His work is perfect. For all His ways are judgment. A God of truth and without iniquity, just and right is He. That is the only response, amen, to that text. Speaking of the Israelites, they have corrupted themselves. Their spot is not the spot of his children. They are a perverse and crooked generation. Do ye thus requite the Lord, O foolish people and unwise? Is not he thy father that hath bought thee? Hath he not made thee? and established thee. So, to introduce these 20 points, this is fatherly duties. What we owe to our Father. Fatherly duties. And I'm using that little phrase in the sense of what we owe our Heavenly Father. Notice that it says in verse 6, Is not he thy father that hath bought thee? Because he bought them out of Egypt by sacrificing the Egyptians. I gave Ethiopian Egypt for thy ransom, it tells us in Isaiah 43. And here it's referred to as the redemption price for Israel was the ruin of the Egyptian nation. Didn't I do that for you? Do ye thus requite the Lord by being a perverse and crooked generation? You know from reading the Bible that the Old Testament history of the Jewish church is terrible. They were a crooked and perverse generation. Let's be a straight and narrow and right generation. 
Let's be our best for him. We and our children and our children's children. And so this is a, this is a question, this is a criticism by Moses of the nation. Is this how you're going to repay the Lord? In Isaiah chapter 1, do you remember how it started? Isaiah 1, and, and listen to how it continued in the book that we just studied. The first verse of the whole book, out of 1,282 verses, is the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Isaiah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Well, we know that's just an introduction. But what is the next verse? Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord hath spoken. The Lord God Jehovah spoke. I have nourished and brought up children, and they have rebelled against me. So those two verses, and there are more, like Malachi chapter 1 and verse 6, that says, Do you not give fathers honor? Where then is my honor? Because I am a father. This is God asking his children. And so let us be gripped by the very first point, fatherly duties, the duties that we owe to our heavenly father. We want to give him the best generation, the best church that we can. And he has nourished us and he's brought us up. It is the height of profanity and cruelty and hatred to have a nourishing father that brings us up and is there for us. And then we turn against him. So let's be those delightful children that he seeks. Fatherly honor is next. I'll go ahead and tell you, fatherly honor is next. The first one, and I hope from those three verses of Deuteronomy, Isaiah, and Malachi, you got the message. But fatherly honor is, call no man father upon earth. Matthew 23, 9. Call no man father upon earth in the way that you call me father. Because in the way that I am your father, there is no one else your father. You have an earthly father. And there are ministerial fathers. And it's okay to speak of father and son back and forth between our biological descendants and us and those that propagated us. And so we can use father and son. We can use father and son in the ministry like Paul did with Timothy. Paul could say that he was the father of the Corinthian church because in a gospel conversion way, he was. He said, though you have 10,000 instructors in Christ, you've only got one father because I have begotten you through the gospel. I got you started. These other teachers that have come along, and the Corinthian church had a number of them, as Paul implies, it can be used. But when it comes to any important role of changing our nature, of actually providentially leading us through life, of saving us, of sacrificing his only begotten son for us, of having a real inheritance for us. You know any earthly inheritance you're going to leave here? But his, his inheritance is not left here. And so in all the big ways of God being our father by regeneration, election, and future glorification, there's only one. And I just want to take that point. Jesus revealed that to us in Matthew 23, 9. Call no man father upon earth, for one 
is your Father which is in heaven. And so I take those words, I understand them by comparing Scripture. There's only one Father in this way, and let's call Him Father. Those Catholics that go around calling priest Father, and then Pope's most holy Father, and other statements like that, are running straight into the Lord Jesus against the Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew 23 and verse 9. In 1 John 2, 1 John 2, the apostle wrote this about us and our relationship to the world and our relationship to God. 1 John 2, 15, he wrote, Love not the world. Love not the world. Don't you love this worldly system and these worldly people? Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, and the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. And so based on those three verses, we have another point of duty toward God our Father. And that is not to love this world. And John would summarize this world as being really nothing more than three categories of things. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And if you will think just a moment, you can take everything in this world and throw them into one of those things. If you think you have an exciting job, it's the pride of life. If you think your car looks nice, it's the lust of the eyes. If you have a problem with fantasies, it's the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes. Everything in the world, when you go back to what Satan did with our first parents in the Garden of Eden, he only used those three things. He said, look at that tree. It's beautiful to look at. It's going to taste good, and it can make you wise like God. That is the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. When Satan was with Jesus in the wilderness, he did the same three. Same three. Lust of the flesh, bread, pride of life. If you're the son of God, then show us Psalm 91 being fulfilled in your life and jump off the temple pinnacle. It's all there. You say, you just reduced the devil's tool bag to three. Don't get too excited variations of those three tools in that tool bag have gotten you in the past. But it's not of the Father. And so if you love the things of this world, you do not love the Father. Measure yourself. Test yourself. Ask yourself today. While we are together and the Lord's bringing His Word to bear on our lives, if you love the things of this world, you don't love the Father. They're not going to last anyway. And he that does the will of God is going to abide forever. So if you want to be in forever land, and if you want to be with God and own all things, because all things are ours, then hate this world. It's going to come after you one way or another. The devil's able to see what you read, see what you say. It's reported to him, so he knows what's important to you. Get rid of, let nothing be as important to you as God himself, so that your love is of him. That is dedicated loyalty. That's the third one, the third line. And hopefully our technicians are taking care of those at home. That C, 
if you're numbering it numerically. It's, it's three. Dedicated loyalty for love of the world excludes love of the Father. Close by in 1 Peter chapter 1 is this statement. And if ye call on the Father, have any of you ever prayed, Dear Heavenly Father, have any of you ever said the Lord's Prayer, Our Father, which art in heaven? Well, here's what the Bible says in 1 Peter 1.17. And if ye call on the Father, who without respect of persons judgeth according to every man's work, pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold, and he goes on to describe and lift up the Lord Jesus Christ. Pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. So it's called sojourning fear. You ought to have sojourning fear of God. That is an awesome, rever an awestruck reverence for His greatness and His glory and your desire to obey Him and please Him and not offend or displease Him in any part of your life. You should have sojourning fear. We are only down here for a little while. We're sojourners. We're passing through. We're pilgrims and strangers on earth. But while we're passing through this place, don't let it attract you. Have sojourning fear. Because this father of ours has no respect of persons. He doesn't care what you think of you. He doesn't care what your wife thinks of you. He especially doesn't care what your parents think of you because they never think the truth. I hope you all know what that means and how to understand that without me explaining it. He has no respect of persons. It doesn't matter how many promotions you get or what flattering things others say to you. He judgeth according to every man's work. He only measures men by character and conduct, period. And it's over. Every, every man thinks he's special. Every woman thinks she's special. Until they are fully taught by the Holy Spirit to know that they're not. And so this sojourning fear here is defined for us that when we, dear Heavenly Father, if you call on the Father and you're expecting Him to give you something by you saying, dear Heavenly Father, remember that He has no respect of persons and He judges according to men's character and conduct, therefore you better pass your 70 years in sojourning fear. Thus saith the Word of God. And the verses that came in front of this verse will, should get your attention if you know the attributes of God. Verse 15, But as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation, because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. And if you're going to call on that holy God and call him Father, which we are by today's preaching, we want to call him Father, you need to live in sojourning fear. Luke 6, sojourning fear, was number 4. Luke 6. What would happen if Joel Osteen tried 1 Peter 1.17 on Lakewood Church in Houston? How big would his, con if it was 30,000 there, 
how many would be there next Sunday if he preached 1 Peter 1.17? You know, he only preaches one sermon. It's just a variation of the one sermon every week. Pass the time of your sojourning in excitement. You can be like me in Victoria. You can be just like us, driving the big fancy cars like us, living in the big fancy homes, flying private jets just like us. Pass the time of your sojourning here. Now he can smile better than I can. Pass the time of your sojourning here in excitement. But that is not what the Bible teaches. Do you know why? Because Jesus has revealed the Father to us, and he hasn't to him. He doesn't know God, the Father of the Bible. He's never preached about him a single time. No one's able to find any record of it. In Luke 6.36, Jesus taught this rule. Be ye therefore merciful, as your Father also is merciful. So Jesus revealed further attribute of our Father. He's merciful, and we're supposed to be merciful like He is merciful. Are we told in Micah 6.8 that the one thing God requires of us and it's not rivers of oil and thousands of burnt offerings. It's to do justly, walk humbly, and love mercy. Because that's Micah 6.8. In Micah 7.18 it says, Because God delighteth in mercy. And so those are your three verses for that point. And it's divinely merciful. Let us be toward God divinely merciful. It is not, it is, we are not, stressing what he is toward us. He is merciful. We've already dealt with that. Like as a father pitieth his children, remember? From Psalm 103, this is us toward others so that we can show his character. Divinely merciful, his rule by example and for more mercy on us. David understood this. David had so much, much mercy shown to him in his life and he taught and wrote in Psalm 18, which is also... 2 Samuel 22, to the merciful, thou wilt show thyself merciful. So God delights in us showing mercy. And if we show mercy, the rule here is that we want to be like our Father in heaven. So let's see how merciful we can be. Is he able to forgive 10,000 talents? Amen. Do you choke sometimes on 100 pence? Do I choke sometimes on 100 pence? What if we ever had to forgive someone a talent? We'd really fall apart. So let's, let's show the Lord that we recognize His mercy and that we're able to show it to others because that's the real recognition of what He's shown us. To say, the mercy of God is so wonderful. Is it really? Has it changed you? If it's changed you, then let's show it to everyone else who offends us. So it's divinely merciful. In Matthew chapter 6, a related point, but it is sufficiently different to justify its own line. Matthew chapter 6, it's part of the Lord, it's an explanation for what's in the Lord's Prayer. And it's verse 14. You read it last evening. Matthew 6, there's an amen ending verse 13 where the disciples' prayer. What, how the Lord taught the disciples to pray and organize their praying with an outline form of it. 
in verses 14 and 15, after that amen, there's explanatory material of what was in the prayer. For if ye forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if ye forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. In the prayer that Jesus had closed in verse 15, up in verse 12, Jesus had prayed, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. But he wants to explain that to us. Why did we word it that way? Instead of just saying, Lord, forgive me my sins. Forgive me my trespasses. In the Lord's example prayer, we didn't word it that way. We, word, we should word it this way. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Don't forgive me anything that I wouldn't forgive my brother or sister offending me. That should be in our prayer. And that is why often on the prayer list that is in this pulpit, there is a request that says, forgive us as we forgive others to pray this way. And so as soon as he says, amen, the Lord knows that there's going to be some questions. And so he explained in verses 14 and 15, for if ye forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly father will also forgive you. And verse 12 will happen. But if ye forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your father forgive your trespasses. And verse 12 won't work. So let's always be merciful. Let's give the benefit of the doubt to everyone. That's the previous point. Let's always be merciful. David was so merciful, he didn't forgive the 200 because they didn't do anything against him. When he was chasing down the Amalekites, who had stolen all his family and stolen his men's families, the 600 were so exhausted that 200 couldn't go any further. So they left them at a river, and the 400 went on, and with God's blessing, recovered all and brought it back. And the 400, being the bums that they were, without David's character, said, we should get all this stuff, and the 200 shouldn't get anything because they didn't go with us. And David said, no way. And he taught a rule to be followed in Judah from then on, and that is whoever goes to war, even if they're not able to do everything that the best do, they get to partake of the spoils. That's mercy. But did David forgive Saul, who tried to kill him? David was very forgiving, and he forgave Saul many times. What an example he gave us. And so we want to forgive everyone as well. We want to be merciful. So we can be merciful to children by only requiring of them what their age justifies. There's a way that you can be merciful. But then when someone sins against you, can you forgive them? Can you blow it off and forget about it? The discretion of a man deferreth his anger, and in his glory to pass over a transgression. It should be exciting to forgive. And so we have this rule Jesus Christ taught us about our Heavenly Father. It's the forgiveness rule, and it's number six, the forgiveness rule. He will forgive us as we forgive others. And if we don't forgive others from our heart, he says that he will be like a tormentor and subject us to torture and extract every bit out of us 
that He's forgiven us. And that's the last two verses of Matthew 18 and the parable of the 10,000 talents. Because that man that had been forgiven 10,000 talents went and took another man by the throat who owed him 100 pence, and the king was angry when he heard about it, and he delivered him to the tormentors. And Jesus, he is sweet to us. But what the world thinks of Jesus, they've never met this Jesus. This Jesus says, if you don't forgive others from your heart, God will treat you like that king treated that servant and subject you to torment until you pay the uttermost farthing. That's the forgiveness rule. We're in Matthew 5. Now, Matthew 5. I love these verses. I want you to love them. I want you to please our Father which is in heaven. I want you to show His character by God's regenerating grace in your life. And I want you to be excited about doing so. I was able this past week. It's not worth hearing. I was able this past week. And I would only bring it up for a valuable purpose with, an, with someone about forgiveness of how the Lord arranged unique circumstances for me to know about my number one enemy having an important birthday. And the Lord arranged all the circumstances and they were many and large. And they were magnificent. And I told him he was magnificent because he wanted to see if I believed what I preached to you. And I was punching the air and I was telling him, draw an eye, watch this. And I typed a love letter to my number one enemy that I hadn't spoken to in 26 years. And I said, the Lord, Lord, I want you to see what I'm, read this over my shoulder. I'm nothing, nothing, nothing at all. But it's exciting to, have, to be taught the Word of God and then to put it into practice and to tell the Lord, I know, how, I know how and why you arrange these circumstances because you want to see if I believe what I preached to the people last night because it was a Thursday morning after a Wednesday evening when I was ready to devour the whole church. I was preaching on the eulogy of David about Saul. I was out of control. I was down the aisle because I was so intense on wanting all of you to be like David. And this was how to be like David in a very difficult way when Saul died, what did David do? He had every reason and he had every opportunity to take advantage of his enemy being dead and lord it over him and run him into the ground and mock him. And, and the man deserved it. But David wouldn't do that. David eulogized Saul. And when you read 2 Samuel 1, you think, who is this? If you didn't know the Bible, you'd say, this must be one great man. For David to praise a man like this, he must be greater than David. But it's David showing us God's character. Now watch what the son of David brings to bear on all of us. Matthew 5, verse 43. Ye have heard that it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. That was Pharisee religion. And how many of us are Pharisees? By nature, we all are because we all want to love our neighbor, our good neighbor, the neighbor we like, and hate our enemies by nature. But I say unto you, here's the religion of Jesus Christ, love your enemies, 
Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. And pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. Watch. That ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. In the practical phase of salvation, we don't become the children of God by inviting Jesus into our hearts. In the practical phase of salvation, we become the children of God by acting like God. And how do we act like God? We love our enemies. That ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven, for he maketh his Son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. For if ye love them which love you, what reward have ye? Do not even the publicans the same? And if ye salute your brethren only, what do ye more than others? Do not even the publicans so. Be ye therefore perfect. Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. Loving responses is the next one. Loving responses, even to enemies, to be perfect sons of our Father. Every proverb commentary that goes out from our church that deals with honoring authority, and especially honoring parents, I will get letters back saying, well, what about my parent? They did this to me. (laughs) My answers are always the same. I don't care. They hold an office. Honor their office and forgive them because you don't count. Not very many people like that message, but it's the message of Matthew 5. And it's how the Lord treats his enemies. He's not always going to treat them that way. He's not always going to send his son and his reign on his enemies because he will judge them in a day that's coming soon. But I wanted you to notice in these verses, verse 45 and verse 48, because it's referring to our Father. The way that we show that we are the sons of God is to act toward enemies the way God does. The way that we show that we're perfect and the way that we can be perfect is to be perfect like our Heavenly Father is toward enemies. And so there, do you know what you all ought to be thinking to yourselves right now? I'm deprived. I'm upset. I don't have an enemy. Lord, send me an enemy. I would not suggest that prayer. I wouldn't suggest it. If you go ahead and pray it, be ready. Because you can't show this until you have an enemy. This is us toward God. God does it and God shows it and we can be like Him. He wants us to be like Him. So He gives the example. This is Jesus revealing the Father to us. Do you see Jesus revealing the Father to us? Would you have known about the rain and the sun and that stuff? We could have thought it, but Jesus explained it to us. He sends it on those that hate Him, the just and the unjust. And so we learn a great lesson. I wish I could take you all back to that moment. I, I don't like to tell stories like that very much, and I hope that everyone understands how I'm saying it. I want you to think about some enemy and how much you can forgive them, and if you can pray for them, and if you can bless them, and if you can pray for God's blessing in their lives, and if you can write them a love letter. I wrote my number one enemy a love letter and I heaped coals of fire on that enemy's head and he wrote me back and he said, if you're John, I'm Gaius.
It didn't last very long, but it was nice for a few days. I don't mean me. Let's go to the next point. John 15. John chapter 15. It's exciting to have an enemy so that you can practice Matthew 5 because if you don't have one, you can't do it. It's like you need a forward boss. All of you have learned that one, right? You can't do anything thankworthy on the job until you have a forward boss. I mean, the Lord says if you've got a good and gentle boss, you're on vacation. You're not at work. Um, and so you need a forward boss, and then you can do something out of conscience toward God that is worth thanks from the God of heaven. So the next one, we're in John 15 and verse 8. Herein is my Father glorified. This is Jesus revealing the Father to us. Herein is my Father glorified that ye bear much fruit. So shall ye be my disciples. And so this one is fruitful glorifying. Fruitful glorifying. How do we glorify God? By being fruitful disciples of Jesus. In Matthew 5, Jesus would say, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. This is an indirect way of glorifying God. By good works, people saying, God, there's a God in heaven. Look what he just said to me. Look what he just did for me. And by bearing fruit. Fruit, like the fruit of the Spirit. Fruit, like souls converted. Fruit. And so you glorify God. Letting your good works be seen to glorify your Father which is in heaven. Look at Luke 23 and verse 46. Jesus teaching us how to die. Well, we've been over it. You don't need to turn to it. You know what it says. How did Jesus teach us to die? Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. Did Stephen learn how to do it? Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Because now that Jesus was in heaven at the right hand of God the Father. And so it's called dying wisdom. Dying wisdom, meaning wisdom how to die. To give your spirit into your Father's hands. When it's time, why hold on to it? Give your spirit to Him. Say so. Jesus said, my life will not be taken from me. I will lay down my life and I will take it up again. And he laid it down by just giving up into the hands of God. There's nothing manly about gripping your bed rails until your knuckles turn white trying to stay here. No matter how hard you grip. And we're going to be looking at the end of that bed rail to see if water drips out of it from your mighty grip. But even if water drips out of it, you're still going at the same time. Let's not fight that. So there's dying wisdom in the Word of God. Look at Malachi 2. Malachi 2 is about divorce and remarriage in Israel that displeased God greatly because it was terrible. It was Jewish men divorcing their Jewish wives to marry pagan babes. And it says this to get started in Malachi 2.10. Have we not all one father? Have we not all one father? Why are you men abusing other men's daughters by divorcing them to marry foreign babes? Have we not all one father? Hath not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously every man against his brother by profaning the covenant of our fathers? This is family affection. Family affection. 
involves how we treat divine siblings. What is a divine sibling? Another son of God. Do we have divine siblings in this church? Many of them. They are other sons of God. How should we treat them? The way our father would like our family to get along. We have one father together. We have one God together. Family affection, taught in the Bible. 1 Thessalonians 3. 1 Thessalonians 3. Here's the Apostle Paul writing this good church in Macedonia. And he has this to say about them in verses 11 through 13. Now God himself and our Father. So he's our God and he's our Father. Now God himself and our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, this is 1 Thessalonians 3.11, direct our way unto you. We hope to come and visit you soon. And the Lord make you, the Lord make you to increase and abound in love one toward another and toward all men, even as we do toward you. To the end, he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God, even our Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. When Jesus Christ comes back, he's going to gather us together and present us to God. But there's a way that we want to be presented to God, and that is in holiness and unblameableness. And how do we get there? We get there by abounding in love one toward another and toward all men, even as we do toward you. So this rule is confident meeting. The, the way to meet God confidently is to be holy by love. In 1 Peter 3.22, it says that we can purify our hearts by loving the brethren. 1 Peter 3.22. I've used 1 Thessalonians 3.11-13 for you. And so it's confident meeting. We want to meet God confidently. And Paul said, The Lord make you to increase and abound in love one toward another. This is a, a one another love duty. And toward all men, even as we do toward you. To the end, here's the purpose, that he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness. Do you know how much of the angst in our hearts is because someone has offended us, disappointed us, frustrated us, and we just hold on to it, and our little heart knots up, and the coronary arteries can't get very much blood, and people get angina, and they die of heart attacks. Do you want to do yourself a favor? Forgive everyone and love them from your heart, and you'll establish yourself in holiness, and you'll be ready to meet God. What in the world are you upset about someone on earth? They haven't done anything wrong to you. You say, they killed my mother. They haven't done anything wrong to you. They killed both parents. They haven't done anything wrong to you. Forgive them. You say, you are so extreme. Okay, I'm going to give you 100 pence. I'm going to give you 100 pence for both parents. I only give you 50 pence for one parent. The Lord's forgiven you 10,000 talents. Let go of it. Otherwise, you get all knotted up. How can we meet the Lord with a knot in our chest? I like this motion. This is the man with a heart too big for his ribcage. God's been that way to me. The love and forgiveness he's shown me is unbelievable. It doesn't make one bit of sense. 
confident meeting. I'm telling you how to meet God confidently. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. 2 Corinthians 6. Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion hath light with darkness? And what concord hath Christ with Belial? Or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God. As God hath said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you, and will be a, and will be a, and will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. Children, Jackson, Ben, we don't celebrate Halloween in this church. We don't celebrate Christmas in this church. We don't celebrate Easter in this church. We don't celebrate Valentine's Day in this church. Do you know why? Because we want God to be our Father in this practical relationship way right here, and He tells us not to touch the unclean thing, but to be separate and to come out from this world and not to be joined together with them. And so I just read you five verses, 14 through 18, right here, and it says, if we will do those things, verse 17, wherefore come out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing. Let's not even have it around. And I will receive you, and I will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters. Now listen, the Corinthians were already sons and daughters of God. But this is a practical way of relationship and fellowship with him that they would have enhanced by cutting off the world. Oh, now I'm getting in trouble. I knew I didn't have an introduction, so I said to myself, you can take a few more minutes on each point. And now I rue those words. Deuteronomy 14. Ye are the children of the Lord your God. Listen to this. Ye are the children of the Lord your God. Ye shall not cut yourselves, nor make any baldness between your eyes for the dead. Tattoos for the dead. For thou art an holy people unto the Lord thy God, and the Lord hath chosen thee to be a peculiar people unto himself above all the nations that are upon the earth. We don't want to do what other nations do. We don't want to do what our nation does. We want to be separate and not touch the unclean thing, and God will be a father to us, and will be his sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. Is it the right God that we have in store here? And then the next verse, the first verse of chapter 7, having therefore these promises dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Because that first verse of chapter 7 goes with those five verses I just read to you, because there are seven precious promises in those five verses, and the first verse of chapter 7 appeals to them. It's called separation honored. God honors separation from this world. Matthew chapter 6, Jesus is going to teach us about prayer because he's going to reveal more to us about how to be effective with our Father. You read this last evening. When ye pray, use not vain repetitions as the heathen do. It's verse 7, For they think that they shall be heard for their much speaking. Be not ye therefore like unto them, for your Father knoweth what things ye have need of before ye ask him. 
Isn't that a beautiful two verses right there? We are taught something about God that Jesus revealed to us, that he already knows our prayer requests. He already sees our prayer list. And so we don't have to use a lot of words. And I have tried. And sometimes I think that I have failed in teaching you all you need to do is make mention of things to the Lord because he already knows what you have need of. Just make mention of them. He is not impressed by much speaking. They think that they shall be heard for their much speaking. Sometimes I think that you think you'll be heard for giving him all the details of a case. All you need to do is say, she's sick, heal her. Why do you need to tell him what it is, where the doctors have failed, that she's discouraged from time to time, that she's tried various remedies and they haven't worked, and you go on and on, and pretty soon I'm sawing logs because I don't know who you're talking to. I don't know who you're talking to. You don't talk to God that way. That isn't fervent prayer. That isn't effectual prayer. He's wondering why you're trying to inform him about details that he already knows. Just tell him. She's sick. She needs your help. Speak the word and she'll be healed. Get to the next, get to the next petition. Prayer confidence. Yes, is, is that one. Prayer confidence. In Matthew chapter 12, Jesus was told, your mother and your brethren are here to see you. Shouldn't you break off this meeting and get out there to them? And he stretched forth his hand toward his disciples and said, Behold, my mother and my brethren. For whosoever shall do the will of my Father which is in heaven, the same is my brother and sister and mother. Anyone that will do the will of the Father in heavenly heaven. It's called family character. That one is called family character. Help me finish on time. I'll blame someone. I told you already I'm blaming myself. But let's, let's learn these things that we can do. Family character is our compliance with our Father like Jesus had. He considered his real family those that did the will of the Father which is in heaven. In John chapter 4, he told the woman of Sychar, the woman of Samaria, she's commonly called, that God seeks worshipers that will worship him in spirit and in truth. Worship in spirit is not outward, external, ceremonial, ritualistic worship that the Jews had, so he condemned the Jews. Worship in truth is not Mount Grisham of, of the uh, Samaritans, because they were trying to ape the Jews, so they didn't have true religion. Their priests weren't true. Their temple wasn't true. They didn't have the truth. So Jesus blasted both systems of religion and said, the Father seeks such that will worship him in spirit and in truth. It's spirit with a little s, it's internal worship of our spirit with God, who is a spirit, not an outward form, and it is by truth according to God's word. So let us be true worship. Tr have true worship is what we want for that point. God seeks both spiritual worship and true worship by his word. True, pure religion, or true worship is what it's called. True worship. In John chapter 8 and verse 19, John 8, 19, Jesus said, Where is thy father? Jesus answered, Ye neither know me nor my father. If ye had known me, ye should have known my father also. And this line of reasoning is followed with Philip, and it's followed with other enemies of the gospel as well in other verses. This is called son recognition. Do you recognize the son and recognize the Son 
as being of such character with the Father that if you've seen Jesus in the pages of Scripture, you've seen the Father. We're dealing with how do we treat the Father? The first service today was how the Father treats us. Now it's how do we treat the Father, and that is to recognize His Son. That is the Son of God. When I look at Him, I see the Father. God is honored by that because He knows that Jesus Christ was perfect in His character and conduct on earth. Pure religion is the next one. Pure religion, though simple in character, it's enough for God the Father. In James chapter 1, James 1, we have this statement. Pure religion. And so this one is called pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. Notice the words, pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father. When we are told what pure religion is before God and the Father, it should excite our souls that it is that simple. Because it says it's before God and the Father. Now God the Father should keep us in holy, trembling joy. Let me put those two together. Because He's God the Father. He's the Lord Almighty. But His pure religion is so simple. Visit those that need a little bit of encouragement and help and keep yourself unspotted from the world. You know I hate that thing. I hate that place and I hate those people. So keep yourself unspotted from it and that's good enough. Come on home. Pure religion. Wow. So we show a little bit of charity. We pull out a few bucks. We give to someone who could use a little help and encouragement. And we say, no, I hate that. It's the world. Can't stand them. The Lord loves it. Simple. It's called pure religion. Hebrews 12 is close by. Hebrews 12 and verse 9. Earlier, when we had an opportunity to look at God's chastening, and it was called loving chastening in the first service, I didn't take us to Hebrews 12. I took us to Proverbs 3. But in Hebrews 12, chastening begins at verse 5. But in verse 9 it says, Furthermore, we have had fathers of our flesh which corrected us, and we gave them reverence. We had fathers that corrected us, and we gave them reverence. After a good beating, he's the man of the house. I'm speaking of my father. We've had fathers of our flesh which corrected us, and we gave them reverence. Shall we not much rather be in subjection unto the Father of spirits and live? And verses 12 and 13, Wherefore, lift up the hands which hang down, and the feeble knees, and make straight paths for your feet, lest that which is lame be turned out of the way, but let it rather be healed. Get excited that God chastened you. We would be thankful for a father, and we would give him reverence when he reminded us of our place by something on our backside. And I got quite a few of those, and I needed more. That's a loving brother, but it's an honest brother. Do you see this? How do, we re- how do we treat God? How do we respond to God? This is called reverent response. Reverent response 
because we gave reverence to earthly fathers when they chastened us, how much rather should we give reverence to him that is above when he takes the time out of his day to teach us the right way and to give us a few reminders on the backside that that's the way we should go. So we should lift up the hands hanging down, strengthen those feeble knees, punch the air, and say, thank you, Lord, for being a loving father that way to me. It's called reverent response. In Ephesians 3.14, we are called the family of God. And so it's family name, sons and daughters of the Lord Jehovah. And I have a number of references, and I'm going over, I'm just telling you about them. They're Ephesians 3, Ephesians 4, Revelation 14. It's the family name that we have. And Paul would say, of whom the whole family is named, of those in heaven and those on earth. All the sons of God. Most are in heaven. There are still some on earth, and we're named after God our Father. Of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. So we have a family name. Do you honor that family name? Do you love that family name? Do you love your siblings in that family? Because you're sitting among your siblings. We're the family of God. I love writing you recently, dear church family. I just wanted you to think about that word family because Paul used it in relation to our position as sons of God. And here's the last reference, 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. Let me just read a couple of these verses. I'm going to start at verse 22. This is called sonship doctrine. Church, when we get a little particular about our sonship doctrine, there's a reason why. It's because the Father wants to be treated very carefully in how we define the relationship between the Father and the Son. He's very particular about it. There is a slide presentation on our website called The Christ Wars, where there's a timeline. And I start back with the apostles and show the wars against the proper identity of Jesus Christ. They were misidentifying him as early as the New Testament was written. The Jews themselves, while he was alive, misidentified him. So, when we stop and say, we're going to change that phrase in a song that we sing at men's meetings because it says the eternal Son of God, or the eternal, we're doing that for a reason to honor the Father in heaven because God the Father wants us to have correct sonship doctrine. Watch these words. 1 John 2, 22. Who is a liar? But he that denieth that Jesus is the Christ. He is Antichrist that denieth the Father and the Son. Whosoever denieth the Son, the same hath not the Father. But he that acknowledgeth the Son hath the Father also. Let that therefore abide in you, which ye have heard from the beginning, that is apostolic doctrine about the Sonship of Jesus Christ. If that which ye have heard from the beginning shall remain in you, ye also shall continue in the Son, and in the Father. And this is the promise that He hath promised us even eternal life. That's why we care about sonship doctrine. We want to identify God the Father exactly and the Son exactly and their relationship to each other and that Jesus Christ has indeed come in the flesh. 
And that was one, and I went over the heresies of Gnosticism and other heresies of the early, Christ, of, of early enemies of Christ, even though they called themselves Christians. We want the proper doctrine of Jesus Christ. So number 20, the last one is sonship doctrine. Marks the children truly in the Father and the Son because they care to properly identify their Father in heaven and His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior, who came in the flesh to redeem us. And so there are 20 points about us toward God of how we can treat our Heavenly Father better to be more delightful children to Him. And I trust the preaching of His Word in the first service about God toward us blessed you, and the second service will remind you these are things that our church stands for because the Bible teaches them to be better children of God. And that's why we did it. Stand with me, please.